So <clears throat> just, uh, just as a quick note, I'll make a reference to those of you watching the video or listening on the podcast. Uh, the microphone in my, the battery of my microphone died, so we got to use an external mic today. So you guys will not notice any difference, but the people who listen will notice a, a significant difference in how it sounds. And they'll be able to hear all of your coughing and clanking and dishes moving and all of that. So uh, cell phones going off and everything. So go ahead and check your cell phone now. So I won't have to embarrass you in front of our watching public. No, we're, um, we're in Deuteronomy, still chapter 19. And as we've seen before, each week Moses is recapping the law to Israel. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, second law. And he's repeating it to the next generation. But he's not just repeating the law, he's preaching the law. And that's the difference between reading Deuteronomy and reading Exodus and Leviticus. Is Deuteronomy is, is law, but it's law being preached, not just being read. So there's parts that are expanded, there's parts that are contracted, because Moses is giving sermons as he's renewing this covenant for the people, not just reading the law once again. They could have read the law, they had the book of the law already, they could have reread it. That's not what Deuteronomy is, it's him preaching the law, expanding on the law, um, and appealing to the people to, to get them to not do what their, ancestors, what their parents' generation did which is rebel and die without the promised inheritance. And so now he's, he's talked about last few weeks, we've seen him address the offices in Israel that are going to be set up. Uh, everything from the prophet, we talked about last week, the priests, um, judges, and even a king, if they should so desire one day to have a king. And, he, and he's, he's laid the groundwork for what that will look like. Now, kind of flowing from that are issues involving uh, governing the people and how those rulers, judges, priests, king, how they would rule and govern the people in the land. Deuteronomy, remember, it's it's a covenant document for a national entity. You know, it's not just devotional reading. It's not one-on-one -on -one material. It's not just general ethical guidelines. That's the mistake that most people make when they read the Bible is they look for general ethical guidelines. And the only time you ever really even find that is in the book of Proverbs. Everything else in the Bible is, is very specific to specific times and specific movements within the overall redemptive covenant story of God. So whenever I teach on the Bible and interpreting the Bible, like I'm going to go next week again back up to uh, Samaritan's Purse and, and do a workshop for their field staff on how to interpret the Bible. And one of the things that I always try to ingrain from the beginning is, look, stop reading the Bible the way critics or diehard uh, defenders of it often read the Bible, which is it's giving God's general truths for all mankind for all times. It's not. It never claims to be doing that. What you have to do is read the Bible as a story, as, an, uh, as a, as a five-act play. And we're in Act 4 today, us, but right now we're reading from Act 2. And so knowing the different acts of the Bible and the different movements of it helps us then interpret the scriptures in whatever section we're reading, how they were meant to be interpreted, rather than reading our own meanings back into these or trying to pull them out and just blindly apply them in different settings. And so we can't do that because when you do that, you get into all kinds of conundrums and you get into all kinds of inconsistencies. And once you take the Bible out of its historical element, then you, that's the only way, you, when people say you can make the Bible say anything. Yeah, you can, if you remove it from its context. 
But if you read the Bible in its context and you note what's happening when and who's being spoken to and what's being written to, then everything starts to fall in place and you see the movement of God throughout history. You see the redemptive trajectory that he's trying to bring his people to and you see how that will culminate in the New Testament even with how they apply Old Testament scriptures in new settings. And so all of that, it's a much bigger conversation and, and it's a broader subject, but it informs how we read the Bible. It's what we do every week as we get together and we read through these books of the Old Testament is we say, what did it mean to them? Then we can tease out, okay, now what might it mean for us today? That's how you do Old Testament ethics. So you do New Testament ethics too, but even more so how you do Old Testament ethics because we're, they're, they're written to people in another covenant. They're written to not just another time. It's not like things change simply with the passage of time. Things change with the dawning of covenants. And so with the dawning of the Mosaic covenant, things changed for Israel. And things that were permissible before or overlooked before got codified and permitted, prohibited explicitly now. So for instance, the patriarchs, many of them married their siblings, or half-siblings at least. Right? Abraham and Sarah, she was his half-sister. In the area of the patriarchs, before the law, there was this period of God overlooking as he was bringing the people out of polytheism, paganism, idolatry, bringing them into forming the people of God. Now, with the Sinai covenant, as we saw in Leviticus, the Holiness Code, chapter 18, God said, okay, now these are the things you're not going to do anymore. And he listed marrying or having sex with close relatives. And that would have precluded the patriarchs. There's a redemptive flow. He adds in this section, uh, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, as we'll see later, <clears throat> he'll add to, okay, now, if you divorce somebody, then this is how you have to do it, and this is what you can't do afterwards. Adding in this prohibition or this, uh, this, this governing principle for divorce, which he did not want, but he's adding it into. And then later when Jesus is asked about it, Jesus will say, yeah, Moses, that gave you divorce because of the hardness of your heart, but it wasn't intended to be that way. Meaning that even the laws in Torah were for a specific time and a specific purpose. And something better and stronger and more lasting is what God really desires. So when you just read the Bible piecemeal, pull a verse here, a passage there, a sermon here, a study there, you don't get that flow and you won't make the connections that let you see how it unfolds. And so that's why we do this Bible study, if you're new here, that's why we do this Bible study so painstakingly slow. We don't skip verses or chapters. We go through every verse. We're putting together, you're building a foundation for your theological house. Now, if you've just started coming recently and you're like, oh, we're already in Deuteronomy, I've missed everything before. That's why we record it every week. You go back, hop on the website, it's all free, thanks to donors and sponsors. You go and you can listen and you can catch up to where you are. You can go back and listen to a chapter. If your church is doing a study of a book of the Bible, Old Testament, and you're studying a certain chapter, you can say, hey, check this link out. We just talked about this last year at the Bible study I go to. And, you know, like this is resources for all of you to be able to use ongoing, not just here on a Tuesday afternoon. So all that being said, background wise, God is now through Moses speaking to people, giving them this is how you're going to live when you get into the land. And let's start with, he's moving to the first commandments had to do, or the first, the previous sections had to do with like the first commandments, how Israel should worship, uh, 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 everything from like idolatry, practices prohibited, um, worshiping other gods, 
polytheism, or not polytheism, syncretism, mixing other gods with worship of one god. So he's addressed kind of those first aspects of the Ten Commandments, and now he's moving into the other, the, the lower commandments, or the, the later commandments, <clears throat> against things like lying or false witness, and uh, things like stealing, and things like killing, and honoring parents, and coveting, and all of those things. Now he's this section is going to deal with a number of those, and you'll see it as we read it. So chapter 19, he's going to expand on what was given to the previous generation in Numbers 35. So the previous generation, the ones that all died in the desert, at the end of the book of Numbers, Moses talked about, God spoke, hey, this is what you're going to do when you get in the land. You're going to make these things called cities of refuge. And it listed it out, and it, and it gave like the background in Numbers 35. Now he's reminding the people... This is what these things are important. These cities of refuge are important. And this is what you're going to do when you get into the land. He says, when the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he's giving you, the Canaanites, the specific peoples of Canaan that they're sent to drive out because of their evil. And when you've driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that anyone who kills may flee there. This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to save his life. So he's already talked about what these cities are. And if you weren't here for last year, Numbers 35, these were cities where if you killed someone accidentally, if you did what we call manslaughter, not murder, but manslaughter, then you could flee to these cities and they were kind of like sanctuaries so that you would be protected from the family of the man or the woman you killed because they were the ones who were to enact the sentence because this is how it worked in the ancient world. If some, there wasn't a police force. There wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a public justice system like we think of today. You didn't get arrested. You didn't, if someone killed someone, then there was a person in the family, either a close relative or someone appointed to that task from among the elders whose job was to go find that person, track them down, and kill them. That's ancient justice. That's just how it worked. Reciprocal justice. Now, in other cultures, this would escalate into blood feuds. You know, you killed someone, so somebody from their family killed someone, and somebody from their family killed, and then it becomes Hatfields and McCoys. You know, this, this ongoing blood feud. And so God put things in place to limit that, including the lex talionis, law of taliation, eye for an eye. And so God limited an exodus, and he said, yes, if someone does kill, then their life is forfeit. But you can only do up to what they did. Because in the ancient world, you kill somebody in my family, I kill your whole village in response. It was escalating. It was vindictive. It was revenge, not justice. And so what God said was, no, there's a practice in place. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The punishment has to match the crime and cannot exceed it. That's the most misunderstood principle in all of the Old, Old Testament. When people think eye for an eye, they think vengeance. And like it's giving you permission to get revenge. No, it's actually in its context, again, when read in context, it was to limit retribution, to limit and prevent vengeance. It was eye for eye. He, he blinded you in an accident, the most you can do is blind him back. And usually it wasn't carried out literally. It was payment of some type that equaled that or compensation or whatever. But that was the upper limit. God was trying to limit 
bloodshed in the Old Testament. Again, another misconception that people that don't know the Old Testament but think they do like to embrace as a stereotype, that the Old Testament is just bloodshed, violence. But no, we'll see in this chapter. God is actually specifically trying to put a cap, put a limit on the bloodshed of innocent people within a society. That's what he wants. So he says, here's how it works. Verse 5, for instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. As he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. This would be a workplace injury. All right, on the job, going to cut. So this would apply if you wanted to do a modern setting. Two guys go into a warehouse to move boxes. One runs over the other one with a forklift or something like that. I mean, it's that kind of thing. This is what this is talking about, accidental. The man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. In Hebrew it says without knowing. So God puts a distinction, right? So here's another, let's pull up another urban legend. The Bible never says thou shalt not kill. The Bible does not say thou shalt not kill. King James was not correct when saying thou shalt not kill. What the Bible prohibits is murder. Murder is what it says you shouldn't do. What's murder? Well, here's an example of what's not murder. Unintentional taking of life. That's manslaughter in our justice system. That's not murder. And God specifically here says, such a person, that this is not deserving of death. Why? Because he didn't do it with intent. God takes into account intent, not just outcome. So there's a crime here. There's, a, there's a, a, a tragedy that happens. A life is lost, but the intention is everything in the eyes of God. So he's setting up this place because God knows human nature. People are, oh, I didn't mean to kill him. That doesn't matter to the family of the person who's dead. If they're, in, if they're enraged, if they're mad, especially if there's some kind of, you know, if it's among tribes or clans or any of that kind of stuff. He knows that humans will seek and want justice. They'll want revenge. They'll want, you know, somebody's dead, somebody needs to pay. <clears throat> and that's in theory true, so we got to get some justice somehow. And he knows that in that case, even uh, innocent people may be punished when they don't deserve it. So he sets up these cities as a place, as a stopgap, so that people can go there, they can flee there, <clears throat> and they can be protected if they're undeserving of death. So he says, this is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. Verse 8, if the Lord your God, <clears throat> this is a really fascinating verse, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on oath to your forefathers and gives you the whole land he promised them because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways, then you are to set aside three more cities. This is really fascinating. One, it shows that God is bringing Israel into the land, but that initially they're not going to be at the full extent of what he promised. That if they follow his ways, if they walk in his commands, <clears throat> then he will enlarge their territories. And theologians debate this, actually, because they, there's something that you notice. My friend, he's, uh, he's in, he lives in Nazareth. He's a theologian from Nazareth, Johanna Karanacho. And I went to a talk he gave a few months ago in Bethlehem. And he said, if you look at the borders of the promised land, whenever they're mentioned in Scripture, they're never the same. 
there are no two identical sets of delineation of the borders. And so sometimes God will say, this is the land I'm giving you, and it'll do one, it'll have one extent. And then other times God will say, this is the land, and it'll be different borders. And sometimes it'll be from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, the Nile, which is like all of the middle. I mean, so the borders are very undefined in the Old Testament. And what he said, one of the points he made was that this is not accidental. And one of the reasons that scholars have suggested is the case is because from the beginning, God always intended his people's kingdom to expand and to grow outward. And that what you read in the New Testament when you get to Abraham, when you get to Paul's treatment of Abraham, Paul actually is talking about Abraham in Romans. And he says, Abraham, our forefather, to whom God promised the world. And he uses the term cosmos, which means the whole of creation. And so what... Dr. Conoracho and other scholars have said is Paul was the best of the best when it came to biblical interpretation and Old Testament. And he knew that God had promised Abraham a specific area, but then the children of Abraham another area, and that those areas there was... And so what Paul realized was, oh, these promises were always meant to point to something greater. And that what God was really promising Abraham, if your descendants walk in my ways, then the kingdom will expand, will never cease. And that all the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as God's people expand. And then only in the New Testament we see that that's going to happen actually through Jesus. And now the land, what was land in the Old Testament, hasn't been spiritualized away. It's been enlarged to the whole earth. And that's why Jesus could say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations what Jesus has authority over. It's really fascinating. And you get these little hints and glimpses in passages like this in the Old Testament where the borders of Israel were never supposed to be this little geographic slot of land the size of New Jersey, but were actually always pointing to something bigger. It has major theological implications, but we don't have time to get into it. It's just interesting to note it from passages like this and others in the Old Testament. But God's saying in this section, if you walk in my... And it's all conditional, by the way. It's never a given. It's always based on what the people do. If you walk in my ways, if you follow these laws, and God expands your territory, then add more cities of refuge. That's what this verse is saying. Add more of these. Why? Because it's always important that there not be innocent bloodshed in your land, wherever your land is. This is exactly what he says. Look, he says... Verse 10, do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so you will not be guilty of bloodshed. The reason God's driving the Canaanites out, one of the main reasons is their rampant bloodshed. Everything from the child sacrifices they do to the, just the, the, the violence. It was the same reason he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains. It wasn't just because they were sexually debauched, although they were, but it was beyond it. It was just there was murder and violence and bloodshed. It's the same reason he wiped out people in Noah's day, as we saw back in Genesis. You had ruined your way upon the earth, violence and bloodshed. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. God would rather an entire region of guilty people go unpunished than unjustly kill even ten innocent people. That's exactly what he told Abraham when they had their little bargaining session over Sodom. And so what does that do for us today? We're not in this setting, but we're in a setting where people have to debate issues of things like, well, what if the innocent, what if the criminals go free? 
we need to be tough on crime. Well, what if that means innocent people die? Well, you know, one or two, I can live with that. Well, can you? Can God? These are the questions we wrestle with. It's up to us to answer from our own perspective and to have these debates later. But again, the text, so you will not be guilty of bloodshed. God sees the killing of the innocent as the shedding of blood, even if it's done in a judicial manner by the avenger of blood in a legally recognized, acceptable capital punishment, which is what the avenger of blood was. That's a legally recognized capital punishment. That's how it happened. Even then, if the person's innocent, that is the shedding of innocent blood, and God hates it. So, verse 11, though, but what if, but if a man hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities. So now, uh, somebody who really is guilty of murder. This is not manslaughter. This is murder. If he flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So now God, to overlook the punishment of somebody who has murdered is also in God's eyes the shedding of innocent blood. Who's innocent blood? The blood of the person who was killed. So either way, God's saying no innocent blood is shed, but the guilty must be punished. And that's how this society is to function. So it's upholding both aspects of the law. And that's our challenge in any society. Outside of the Sinai covenant, which we don't live under, how do we administer the principles of that covenant? The principles are the guilty must be punished. The innocent must not be punished. Both of those things have to be upheld. So in the interest of that, or, or in, in, in dealing with that question then, people may have things ask things like, okay, well, how do we make sure that happens? Well, verse 14. So one of the things having to do with land and boundaries in these cities is he's going to talk more about this later elsewhere in Torah, but he says, do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So one, don't move anything. God's giving you the land. He's going to divide it up. Don't move boundaries. God will determine that. And these cities included will be within these boundaries. So that's important. More important, though, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at the time. This is at the sanctuary. The judges must make a thorough investigation. It will be a trial. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, this is what the commandment prohibits. Remember, there's no command that says, thou shalt not lie. The command is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And it's, this is exactly what he's talking about. The judges must make thorough investigation. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then you shall do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, we read this and we go, whoa, that sounds harsh. No, it's incredibly 
uh, wise in what he's saying. He's saying, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, hand for hand, all of it, yes. But there have to be at least two witnesses. Three witnesses. If there's less than that, if it's just one person's word against another, you do not enact those penalties. They sort it out some other way, but you can't enact that kind of punishment. One person's word against another. That's the safeguard to prevent this rampant taking of innocent blood. The other safeguard, so that's one safeguard, which would do wonders in our own justice system. The other, and it would prevent frivolous lawsuits from taking place, but the other one, even more so, if you witness against somebody and testify against somebody or take somebody to court, basically is what it's saying, even if you're not like we think of on the witness stand. No, this is, if you are bringing a charge against somebody, if you're shown to be lying, then whatever was going to happen to that person, that's the penalty you get. That would do wonders in our justice system. Somehow, some way, however it implements. The concept is lying testimony is a capital offense in a capital crime because it has the ability to take someone's life. And if you've ever read stories of people wrongly convicted, you know, there's so many stories of people that spend decades on death row and then finally DNA evidence clears them and then you look back in their trial, it was just one person and they kind of identified him and the jury was told and the jury said, oh, they did it, did it. Should have never happened. With biblical principles, not the law itself, but principles of the law were followed, things like that wouldn't happen. And, and, and or would happen in greatly less degree. That's what God wants. He wants a just society. We've talked about this before. You can't divorce righteousness from social justice. They're two sides of the same coin. And people on the left tend to pursue social justice and they forget about righteousness. And they'll embrace all kinds of unrighteousness in their pursuit of social justice. I'm talking to you Democrats. People on the right will do the same thing when it comes to social justice. They'll overlook all kinds of social justice issues as long as the person says the right things about the right hot button issues, abortion, same-sex marriage, whatever, whatever, and they'll overlook all kinds of justice. I'm talking to you Republicans. It's both groups, both poles are guilty in some way because they do what Scripture never does, which is divorcing the social justice from the personal holiness. Because social justice flows out of the holiness of God. And so if you pursue one without the other, you fall short of God's vision on either end of the spectrum. And so that's something that we, it's a challenge in our society where we are, where, where, you know, how we interact with society is very multifaceted. And there are differing reasons that we may want to support somebody over somebody for office. You know, got an election coming up in November, blue wave is coming, you know, or we're Trump 2020 or whatever, you know, people are already starting to line up. Our society is already so just like cut in half and, and everything in media and popular TV and preachers that want photo ops with presidents or with other people, you know, they're just lining up and telling you take sides. And I feel like Jesus would walk into the middle of all that and just turn over all the tables and be like, no, you're, it's all wrong. If you believe in somebody enough to vote for them, cool, you have that right. But don't attach me to it. You know, hold, hold them to a higher standard, whoever they are. Criticize whoever it is when they fall short of my standard, regardless of affiliation, party lines, or anything like that. If that's how God's people were, then, then I, I feel like this society, it, it, it's what God wanted for his people back then in their setting, under their system of government, which is a righteous society that's also a just society. 
how would it look in our day, in our situation? You know, we have a different government. We, we have all kinds of things that the people in the Bible didn't have, representative democracy, voting, all that kind of stuff. But the core is still the same. How do we, how do we pursue a righteous society and a just society in the midst of a covenant that is no longer theocratic? We're no longer governing a country that's to be righteous. We're a non-border, international group of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation trying to live righteously in the midst as aliens in this world. So how do we do that? And that's super complex, and there's whole books on ethics and civic engagement and all of that kind of stuff, but it is important. And it's important that we have the foundation for it. Now, and we're out of time, but now is when you would say, okay, now let's discuss how do we apply this in our city council elections and our presidential elections and our congressional, congressional district decision, you know, whatever, our corporate office. Those are the discussions that all of this Bible study should help you have and encourage you to have, but not tell you, not certainly not me tell you which thing you need to believe about it, but rather form your ethic from this. So hopefully I've alienated all of you, which is probably true. Um, no, but, but it's in, in a good way. And it's not, you know, be engaged, be involved, but, but remember what we're reading and what God wants his people and how he wants us to see things. And then act accordingly and pray for grace and give others grace if they disagree. Because ultimately we are not a divided nation when it comes to God. We're his people, his kingdom. So we are unified. And we're also one minute over. So have a great week, and we'll see you guys next week.